We are in a series of messages that we've called Sanctuary Distinctives, What Excites Us About Us. And uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, celebrating diverse faith perspectives and sanctuary's value around that, um, both in the Bible and in community. So I have a question I want to ask for discussion, and you can do this in groups of two to four people, whatever makes sense around you. If you don't know each other, you can introduce yourselves uh, quickly, but let me uh, read the question first. So, which images or names for God do you resonate with the most, and why? So when you think about God, what are the images or names? How do you think about God when you relate to God or talk about God? And I even have some options for you to fill in some gaps if you want, but you can share your own, what comes to mind, okay? Okay, go, groups of two to four, share. Okay, let's come back together. All right, we've got some lively chatter. That's a good sign. <laughs> so this short exercise reveals something about, about us. It reveals uh, how deeply personal and unique each one of us is in our faith perspectives in our relationship with God. Now, I'm sure there were some overlapping ideas and concepts, okay, because many of us share, a tr- share, share traditions and backgrounds. But if we really kind of got at each person we would find some subtle differences between every single person. We all have unique experiences, unique relationship, ideas, concepts about God. Um, In fact, we could even, if we want, and I do, plot this out. This would go. Here we go. Um, We could think about a range of different perspectives on God. And if we, you know, did a survey of every human being who's alive today, 8 billion humans, this would be quite a range of diverse perspectives of God. Some would say, I don't even think there is a God. Some might say, Loki is my image of God. That, is, that works for me. Um, and it could be really fun to have a lot of conversation around that. Now, one of the ways you can think about church community is to think about the range of beliefs that that church is willing to be open to or that church can tolerate and still have a sense of coherence as a church community, right? And so, for example, this would represent the range of a certain church's openness or tolerance, and that range you could plot. And anyone who falls outside of that, the church members might be like, ooh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about that one. Well, I think this is where sanctuary is at, is that we have a high degree of openness and tolerance for diverse perspectives or viewpoints on God. And, um, you know, we could, for example, have someone who says, I think God is like Loki, the God of mischief and chaos. And they might get some strange looks here, but like, sure, you're still welcome. And grab some bagels while you're here. In fact, can you help with bagels? Because we need some help. So put on an apron and get to work. Um, you know, that is, uh, you know, that's kind of how we do things here at Sanctuary. Now, there are probably a lot of other church communities who, like Sanctuary, have a high degree of openness or tolerance. So I'm not necessarily saying, like, we're spectacular at this, but it is a distinctive for us for how we do things. Um, in fact, I want to show you this as well. When we, we just celebrated new members, and our membership commitment entails two things. One, 
Attend the party, be a part of it. And we use that party language. And number two, help host the party. Be a host with us. Um, you know, show up and help out. That's it. Now you'll notice that there is no explicit faith component to Sanctuary's membership commitment. We don't have a list of check boxes of faith or doctrine that members have to sign off on. That's a little different from how a lot of church traditions approach things, where there would be an explicit faith or doctrinal component that members would be expected to give assent to and check those boxes off. We don't have that. We just say, if you want to serve and be part of this, you're welcome. And we'll have conversation about those diverse opinions, and it could be fun. All right, now, the reason we embrace and celebrate different perspectives is because we see it as energizing and enlivening. We believe that we benefit from all kinds of diverse faith perspectives. And our openness in this area translates into other kinds of openness and inclusivity. We have a general posture, I think, of openness. And that shines through in kind of how we do things and um, yeah, how we do everything around here. All right, I want to turn now to the Bible and see how it reflects a diversity of perspectives on God. And let's use the same framework that I just used, this range of beliefs. Um, whoops. Here we go. That's the one. Okay, so here's, I think, one of the common perceptions of the Bible that you know, of all the different viewpoints or perspectives on God, the Bible has a slice of that, of what it's open to and the different perspectives. But this is actually more accurate, that the Bible itself contains a very wide diversity of viewpoints on God. Sometimes they complement one another, and sometimes they are outright contradictory. And if you pull different writers of different texts from the Bible, they would start to contradict each other and how they talk about God. And we're going to look at an example of that today. So our example is going to come from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 through 3. And what we're going to see is that these are two different stories or versions of the creation story, and we're going to see different portrayals of who and what God is like. There's too much text to read because they're very long. Um, when you open up Genesis 1, there's a lot, and 2 and 3, obviously, there's a lot as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you just short sections of each of them, and then we'll do some fun compare and contrast. So here's Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called light. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Then God said, we're going to skip a day. Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So that's Genesis 1. And it continues from there. Goes through six days. God speaks. And it is, and it's good. The fifth day, the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rests from creation. Now here's Genesis chapter 2, and listen 
for how different this is in style and in substance. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not, not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed a human from the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there God put the human whom God had formed. So, two different stories. Genesis 1, it feels almost like a poem or a song. It's got a rhythm to it. First day, second day, it was good. Genesis 2 feels like story time with grandma. There are characters here. There's a specific place, Eden. There's even a talking snake that comes into the story, right? Very different stories. Now, let's dive into some of the detail differences, and then we'll look at more of the substantial differences in portrayals of God, okay? So here we go. In Genesis 1, for example, it begins with the primordial watery chaos. When the curtains open, it's just chaotic waters, deep and dark waters, and the spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. Genesis 2, when the curtain parts, we get the primordial dusty earth. So it's dry and dusty in Genesis 2. Hmm. Secondly, creation in six days in Genesis 1, and creation in one day in Genesis chapter 2. It says, in the day that the Lord God created, and so on. And then, boom, it kind of happens. Uh, in, or I put a question mark there, by the way, because we're not quite sure if it's one day. It's, it's just not spelled out, as in Genesis 1. Uh, the order of things is different. So in 1, humans are created last. We are the pinnacle of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Hello, look at us, human beings. In Genesis 2, we're created pretty early. <laughs> like before the animals, for sure, that's explicit. So the order's different. Uh, women are, are created simultaneously with men in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, there's a lot of humans. God's, God creates humankind in God's image and then says, be fruitful and multiply. So there's tons of humans kind of all over the earth. In chapters 2 and 3, there are, first you get a human whose uh, gender is ambiguous, and then men and women are formed out of that one human, and they're placed in one spot, and that comes in the next one. So there's humans all over the earth in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, you get two human beings who are in a garden in Eden. Very different. Now, these are the details that are different, which matter, but then let's look at the more substantial thematic differences or portrayals of who and what God is like. Okay, so first, we get creation through God's word in the first one. God is speaking, and it is. In the second version, it's happening through God's hands. God is forming creation. God is right in the dust and the dirt and the mud, forming things, right in creation. Pretty different. God in Genesis 1 is above creation, transcendent, outside almost of creation. And in Genesis 2 and 3, God is walking in creation. We even get a line where it says, God was walking in the cool of the day. 
I mean, you just get the picture. God is just kind of strolling through the garden, you know. God is one of the characters inside creation, walking around and interacting with the stuff. In Genesis 1, God is a God who brings order to the chaos. Every step of the way, God is meticulously ordering to bring about a place that is secure and safe and good for human thriving. In Genesis 2, God appears kind of just comfortable with the chaos, right in the mud, right in the garden, there, present to it. And finally, in Genesis 1, God, the images are that God is sovereign, a provider, providential over creation, you know, outside, transcendent over creation. And Genesis 2 and 3, God is in relationship. God is in conversation with the humans. God even asks questions. Where are you? Who told you that? Where's your brother? <laughs> God asks. Cain. Um, that did not go well. Um, <laughs> you know, so you get a very, very much more relational God who's right there interacting within creation against that first portrayal where God seems outside, you know, phenomenal cosmic power. Is that from Aladdin? I think I just quoted Aladdin, right. <laughs> My bad. Uh, <laughs> okay, if you were to get... <laughs> That's awesome. If you were to get um, the authors of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, if you were to get them in the same room and you ask them, what is God like? They would disagree with each other. They would start to have a conversation and one would say, oh, you know, I see God as transcendent, outside of space and time, bringing order. And the other one would be like, ooh, I, I see God like right here with us just like in the mud, forming stuff, talking to us, good friend, you know, and, and on from there. And in fact, this is what's really fascinating about the order of these books, is that if, when, when we ask or look at the literature, Bible scholars believe that Genesis 2 and 3 was written around 850 BCE, okay? This is a very long time ago. That's 850 years before Jesus. And this is the earliest we think it was written. So it could, have, it could have been generated much, much earlier than this. But 850 BCE, that's around the time that Genesis 2 and 3 was written. Genesis 1 was written around 550 BCE. 300 years later, Genesis 1 was written, according to Bible scholars who know stuff. Okay, 300 years that's longer than we've been a country, folks. I mean, think about a text that was written 300 years ago, before the United States was a country, and what are their social concerns like? What is their worldview like? What is their map of the world like? Radically different from our own today. So it makes sense that the stories that were generated from within those communities and times and places would be radically different. Some even think that the writers of Genesis 1 read Genesis 2 and 3, and they're like, ooh, this doesn't quite resonate with how I might consider God. 
And they had a different creation narrative in mind, and that's the story that was popular and that was told in that community. And they wrote it down, and they shared it. Here's the fun part. When you think about the editor of Genesis, okay, not the writer, so you have people who wrote the stories, but now think about the editor who gets these stories. It's like an editor of a newspaper. You got lots of different stories coming at you, and you're going to decide, oh, editor, which makes the cut. What are you going to put in the book of Genesis? And let's say it's a group. It's a panel, right? You got 10 editors, and they're looking at the texts that come in, and they get Genesis 1, and they get Genesis 2 and 3. And they're looking at this, and they start to debate. Like, okay, we've got two different creation stories. Which one should we include? And they start talking about it. Well, uh, this one matches my sense of who God is. And the other one's like, I know this one matches my sense. I think we need to include this. And someone was like, hey, what if we do both? (laughs) And I imagine someone's like, what are you, crazy? Like, you can't put both creation stories. Like, when were people created? Which order? Like, they contradict each other. You can't have both. But as they worked it out, they decided, you know what? We need both. Because both speak to some different aspect about God that is crucial. And we don't want to neglect it. We want to include it so that we can mess up American Christians in the 21st century. (laughs) That'll be so fun. Okay? Because they had a much more elastic sense of how stories work and what is quote-unquote real or true. And they saw the enlivening, enriching gifts of diverse perspectives of these texts, and they included both for us. Amazing. I was part of a small group uh, a couple years ago where we read a book by a couple different authors, and they were offering some new images for God new ideas about God. And it was, it was a fascinating small group and got rather provocative at times because some people resonated with the authors and some people did not, okay? And so we're sitting around talking as we met week after week. Um, and I'll give you a specific example related actually to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. So the authors were, had a, a chapter on social justice, Okay? And they're looking at all of the sort of social justice problems or evils right, of human society, and they're asking the question, how does God intervene with this? The authors suggested that God is, most of all, a loving, patient presence in the midst of social injustice, and that God's not actually doing much to fix things. It's really up to human beings. We're responsible to address social ills, but God is with us as a loving, patient presence. Okay, so we read this, we come together, and some people in the group were like, yeah, that really resonates. Like, I, that's how I see God. I see God as a loving presence, and I'm not so sure God's intervening to fix stuff on like a big global scale. Other folks in the group were like, whoa, 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 no. I see God as definitely active in human history, bringing about good things. And the only reason it's as good as it is, as bad as it is, (laughs) is because God is actively at work. And it might be even worse if God weren't. 
And we can see story after story in the Bible, in fact, where God is intervening to bring about good things in the world. So that's, that's more true. So you can hear the difference, right? And we start to have this lively conversation of these different perspectives on God. I loved it. Um, and I'll just tell you personally, I resonate with both <laughs> perspectives. It depends how, what level of crisis I'm in personally. <laughs> And if I read a really horrible article about some awful global evil, like, I want God to intervene, you know, and I'll pray for God's intervention. Other times I'm like, I'm not so sure. Like, maybe God is loving presence. You know, so I feel the split even inside me. Maybe some of you resonate with that. But you can certainly understand why people might arrive at those different views of God. When I think about the diverse perspectives in that group, and today at Sanctuary, My sense is that God is delighted in this experiment we're doing. That God really embraces diverse perspectives. That it is enlivening. It is enriching. None of us know we're doing the best we can based on our own experiences and histories. We're all trying to figure this out. But we are committed to try to do it together. We have common values, and we're going to celebrate those and center those and center the stories. But we allow, we have a huge openness and tolerance for diverse views, and that is worth celebrating. Amen.